Again, I'm Leslie Kendrick. I'm one of the co-hosts, along with John Jeffries and, of course, the Thomas Jefferson Center. We're so delighted to have all of you here with us. And I'm here to introduce our panel on free speech and hostile environments. We have three very accomplished speakers here today. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Sitting to my immediate right is Ann Coughlin of UVA. Ann Coughlin is the Lewis F. Powell Professor of Law here at the University of Virginia. Her primary research and teaching interests are in the areas of criminal law, criminal procedure, feminist jur jurisprudence, and law and humanities. Professor Coughlin is a recipient of the UVA All-University Teaching Award. She's the co-chair of the National Association of Women Lawyers Supreme Court Evaluation Committee and of its amicus committee. She went to law school at NYU Law School, and after graduating, she clerked for Judge John O. Newman of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and for Supreme Court Justice Louis F. Powell, Jr. Sitting next to Anne is Susan Kruth. Susan Kruth is Legal and Program Officer for Legal and Public Advocacy at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Susan earned her BA from NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study in 2007 with a concentration in music and film. Susan also um, graduated from the law school here in 2011. While at law school, she served as musical director of the law school's a cappella group, the Acapella Opinions. <laughs> and performed in UVA Law's spring musical comedy program, The Libel Show. Susan is a, a member of the Virginia State Bar. She got her start working on free speech issues with our very own Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression in Charlottesville. And I have to say on a personal note, Susan is one of my former students uh, in my free speech class here at the University of Virginia. And it just warms my heart and makes me so proud to invite her here and to have her here as a panelist. Finally, we have Eugene Volek. Eugene Volek is Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA. He teaches a wide variety of subjects, including free speech, tort law, religious freedom law, church-state relations law. He runs a First Amendment amicus brief clinic at the UCLA Law School. He also has taught copyright law, criminal law, and a seminar on firearms regulation policy. Eugene Clark, well, he's a, he's a graduate of UCLA, clerk for um, Judge Alex Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. He's a member of the American Law Institute, a member of the American Heritage Dictionary Usage Panel, which I did not know, Eugene. <laughs> and you may know him as the founder and co-author of the Volek Conspiracy blog, a very high profile and very important legal blog. Another thing I did not know about Eugene, he graduated from UCLA with a BS in math and computer science at age 15 and worked for 12 years as a computer programmer. Eugene was born in the Soviet Union and emigrated to the United States when he was seven years old. We are so privileged to have all three of you here to speak on this topic today, and I'll welcome Aunt Coughlin first. Thank you to the conference organizers for inviting me to participate in this very important event. It's an honor to find myself speaking in such distinguished company. Um, I want to start by identifying my place at the table. I think of 
myself as someone who comes to you from the trenches. I am a law professor, not an expert at all in free speech, and I've been teaching, among a number of other subjects, the law of sexual assault and feminist jurisprudence for the past 25 years. So in a very real sense, I've lived and worked through a number of historical changes in the law school curriculum, as well as in the composition of law school faculties and student bodies. As I understand it, some of the changes that I have in mind, some of the changes I plan to discuss briefly with you, were brought about in part because female students asked for them. Um, as far as the curriculum goes, I've worked with the support of many colleagues here and elsewhere, including especially my colleague John Jeffries, to introduce some of the changes that women fought for in the 1970s and the 1980s when they first gained admission to law schools in large numbers. In 1994, I was sitting at my desk at another law school when the telephone rang, and I picked it up to hear John Jeffries inviting me to join him and Peter Lowe and Richard Bonney as a co-author on a revision of their criminal law casebook. My assignment was to add materials on the law of sexual assault, domestic violence, and feminist perspectives on criminal liability more generally. I accepted that assignment. And as you would expect, it shaped my trajectory from that day to this one. So I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to step back and think for a little while about some of the larger questions that arise from the feminist movement in law, and especially the topic we're discussing today, its implications for what we call freedom of speech. My precise window into the topic focuses on the space on the campus where I work, which is a law school and on the claims made by some criminal law professors that various student demands and criticisms are making it very, very difficult for them to teach the law of sexual assault, even to the point where some professors are saying that they might depart the field altogether. So I take seriously this claim. The claim, as I understand it, is that some of the student demands and criticisms are in conflict with our commitment to speech, our commitment to academic freedom, and some of the student demands and criticisms may well be. Um, but I have to confess that I've watched the contemporary debate with a mixture of bemusement and amusement, um, and my own re reactions arise from what I think of as the failure of many contemporary participants to think through the history of feminist innovations in the curriculum. It never has been easy to teach the law of rape or intimate violence, but the sources of the difficulty have changed over time. So what I think is missing, in part from the current discussion, is any sense of the history of our discourse about the effect on women of speech about sex, of our discourse about the presence of women in law schools and courtrooms where they would be exposed to speech about these allegedly vicious things, nor have we paid sufficient attention to our discourse about whether and how speech inside the law school and other legal spaces might have to change if women were to be admitted into these previously all-male enclaves. So when I hear law professors in the 21st century lament how terribly difficult it has become to teach the law of rape, I detect more than a hint of nostalgia for a bygone era in which that topic was one that students and professors debated openly and rigorously without fear of misunderstanding 
or of giving offense. I have to add that I detect some of this same nostalgia in the posters advertising our conference. The posters contain what our students have taught me to call a prompt and what colleagues in other disciplines have taught me to call a provocation. The prompt, or if you will, the provocation goes like this. Um, these are the words on our poster, quote, Traditionally, American colleges and universities were the vanguard of First Amendment freedoms. Students demanded and made powerful use of expanded speech rights on campus, and administrators held academic freedom sacrosanct. Today, however, the focus has shifted to limiting rather than promoting the free exchange of ideas as growing numbers view freedom of speech as secondary to other values. So I might be missing something, but this description bears precious little resemblance to any world on college campuses or elsewhere that I have ever inhabited. The description harkens back to, conjures up a lost era, a bygone golden age in which speech was free, in which students, faculty, and administrators had open, robust, fearless discussions of all the most difficult issues of the day. Um, there are several reasons why this description does not ring true for me, at least when it comes to law schools. First, the content of the law school curriculum has long been tightly controlled and regulated, with students absolutely required to take a number of core courses and then strongly admonished to enroll in a limited number of preferred electives. As for the remainder of the electives they might choose to take, their content is largely, if not entirely, confined to the preferences and interests of the tenured faculty. Second, the law school curriculum, the law, I'm sorry, the law school classroom, the law school classroom is a place where speech has been tightly controlled and regulated, with many, maybe most professors, employing some form of the famous Socratic method, more prosaically known as cold calling, in which students are emphatically denied the ability to speak freely, but instead must participate in a conversation that may seem to them to be lopsided in terms of its power dynamics. Third, and yes, I am now warming to my subject, <laughs> admission to law school and to the law faculty to the place where this free speech is occurring is not and never has been free. These days, with tuition skyrocketing, our students must mortgage their futures to gain admission here. And the ticket for admission is purchased not just with cash, but with certain important credentials, themselves also expensive and exclusive. Most importantly, for purposes of my remarks today, up until very recently, the ticket for admission could be purchased only by those who possess the credentials of whiteness and maleness. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the Curry School of Education at the invitation of my great friend, Claire Kaplan. I went to teach a session in a course on gender violence. The class held around 30 students, and we had a 60-minute, roughly or so, conversation about Catherine McKinnon and her path-breaking litigation in the arena of sexual harassment. At one point, I found myself looking around the room, and I realized that up until the past few decades, only two of the students in the room and none of the instructors would have been there. There would have been no speakers, no speech, free or otherwise, just an empty, silent space, 
or less hyperbolically, there would have been a different group of speakers speaking about different things. So for me and for these students, our presence on grounds and our ability to study and debate certain topics is an important development in our own lives as we've been given this opportunity to participate in shaping the speech that takes place here and in other elite and powerful places. But this is a development that has a history and we should pay at least some attention to the lessons of that history. So I'm gonna now go ahead and give you a little glimpse of the project that John Jeffrey's invitation to participate has inspired me to uh, undertake. Um, and with uh, uh, apologies to the legal historians among us, yes, I know that I am painting with very broad brushes. There's been a ton of writing on women in law, as I of all people know, and yet this particular question, our discourse about women and their presence in the place where we regulate sex and we adjudicate claims about sex, um, th this precise question deserves some additional pointed attention. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, women began to press for admission to the bar. In some cases, they were successful, and in other cases, they were not. Judges who upheld the exclusion of women from the bar relied on more than one rationale. First, many of you will be familiar with the separate spheres rationale. According to this way of thinking, woman, as they called us then, could not be admitted to practice law because she was by nature destined for the home, for marriage, and the raising of children. The second, and I take it related rationale, was that woman would be injured, tainted, ruined if she was exposed to all of the vicious matters and obscene language that are found in courts of law, especially in criminal cases. Apparently, and I have to say I find this counterintuitive, Apparently, woman did not previously know, from her own experience or otherwise, that such things as sexual assault took place in the world, and the judges were determined to do everything in their power, and yes, they had the power to protect her from hearing anything about it. So, of course, time goes by. Here, here legal historians, I'm painting with a broad brush. Um, women do begin to make inroads. They continue to demand, and they gradually gain admission. And then we see the, the, the discourse changes, and the legal establishment begins to downplay the effect that women might have on legal discourse. And here's one of my favorite examples. Some of you may be familiar with it. Here are remarks by Dean Irwin Griswold in 1950, when he was reflecting on the decision then to begin admitting women to Harvard Law School. He had this to say. It does not seem to me that this particular development is either very important or very significant. Most of us have seen women from time to time in our lives and have managed to survive the shock. We, we have even had a few around Langdale and Austin Halls for a good many years now with no serious consequences. There seems to be no likelihood that we will have a very large proportion of women among our students. I think that we can take it and I doubt if it will change the character of the school or even its atmosphere in any detectable way. As of today, I doubt if this change alone will require any of our faculty members to revise many of their lectures." Close quote. It's also striking to me to remark that for every year, 
after 1950 and for many years afterwards, Dean Griswold would invite female students to dinner at his home where he asked them a ritual question. Why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man? I can't be sure, of course, what motivated Griswold to host these dinners to ask this question. Perhaps he was toying with the women deliberately, trying to guilt trip them. Perhaps he was trying to toughen them up for the so-called real world and to be prepared to defend their existence and their identity as professionals. But as I read these comments, I cannot help but think that at least some of the women must have felt discouraged, belittled, chilled from replying, or even thinking that their purpose was not to assimilate into the real world, but to work to change it. Of course, despite Dean Griswold's prediction, the coming of women did contribute to changing the character and atmosphere and the curriculum of law schools. But, as it should, it changed gradually. One feminist law professor, Marina Angel, reports that she learned nothing about the crime of rape when she was a law student in the 1960s. In her three years of law school, she says, the crime was never mentioned once in the classroom, and as she explained in a piece that she published shortly later, the literature shows that many male professors either avoid this crime completely, or if they try to handle it, call on women's students as a source of amusement for themselves and the male students in the class. Here at UVA Law School, our first woman in law course was offered in the 1970s. The instructor, does anyone know? Our beloved colleague, none other than the great Walter Wadlington. He agreed to take on the class after being lobbied by female students to do so. I wonder what it was like for Walter to teach that early innovation in the curriculum. We've tried to have that conversation and have not yet done so, so I can't tell you. But the Virginia Law Weekly reported at the time that the female students in the class recruited a number of male allies to enroll in the seminar with them, presumably to signal that the subject was one to be taken seriously. In the 1980s, well into the 1990s, many female law professors were, just as Susan Bryson mentioned in her comments yesterday, we were warned away from teaching or writing about women's issues until after we got tenure. The advice was offered in friendly ways, often by women who had endured and perhaps lost difficult tenure battles because of their own, and they hoped to spare us this same fate. But for those of us who rejected that advice and who went ahead and taught rape during the 1990s and thereafter, the classroom sometimes did feel like a cold place, a cold place for us, and a cold place for many of our students. Um, some students and faculty, usually but not always male, challenged the legitimacy of adding these and other topics to the curriculum. Some of them demanded that we participate in public debates in which we were called upon to defend our belief that these topics did merit a place in the classroom. We tried to do that, we were more or less successful, I suppose, and many have carried on teaching these topics, never feeling completely easy or free, but with the sense that times were changing and that our institutions and communities were at least becoming reconciled to our presence and to many of the curricular revisions for which we had labored. Now that sense of peace was an illusion, of course it was, and I can't resist paraphrasing our Nobel Prize winning bard, 
uh, the time, yeah, the times they are again a changing. <laughs> and since that is true, the times are changing, so too our discourse, our speech must change. So just at the point when I had started to believe that I knew roughly, more or less, how to approach these topics in my classroom, I started learning from students that, nope, what I was doing was not good enough. They want the discourse to change again. They want some form of advance warnings. They call it the, the phrase trigger warnings is in the air, some form of advance warnings, a heads up about what the discussion will be. And they want other changes in our discourse, some of which I do not yet fully understand. But in trying to understand what the students are asking for, we must wonder, are they trying to suppress speech? In a very superficial sense, it may seem that this is their point. In a very superficial sense, it may seem that we have come full circle, that we are seeing a return to old styles of thinking about women, about woman, about her peculiar ignorance and sensitivity about her need for protection or coddling. So some are construing the request for trigger warnings, again, which I take simply to be a request to be given a heads up before painful topics are introduced. Some are construing the request for safe spaces as demands from female students primarily to be protected from speech about sex. But the reasons that are offered today for these reforms bear no resemblance whatsoever to the notions endorsed by the early 20th century judges. Our students are not asking to be protected from learning about unpleasant things of which they are ignorant. Quite the opposite. Their point is that many of them, too, too many of them, what are the numbers? There are lots of numbers. One in four, one in five, one in six, whatever that number, too, too many of them have been the victims of sexual assault and other forms of intimate violence, and they are concerned that careless or deliberately hostile ways of talking will re-injure them. So for the most part, I think they are not seeking to suppress speech at all. Instead, they are asking for some modest and necessary revisions in the ways in which we frame and approach these topics. I think that we should take these requests seriously. Uh, we should at least listen to them seriously. We should incorporate some of them, perhaps with some, perhaps with many revisions that faculty might suggest to young students who, who maybe could use some guidance. Um, but I believe we should listen to these requests and incorporate them and then move forward into this ever-changing world. Because what I ask myself is, what does it mean if we ignore these requests, if we, if we reject the request for the so-called trigger warning, for the advance warning, for the heads up? What does it mean? It could mean a couple of things. First, it could mean that we simply do not believe our students when they report to us that they've been raped or assaulted. By denying the warning, we're denying reality. We're telling them, it didn't happen. You are lying or wrong. Second, it could mean we acknowledge that many of them have been victimized, but we don't take seriously the injury that they've endured and survived. We believe they should suck it up, toughen up, 
endorse callous ways of explaining and reconciling themselves to their own experiences. For my part, and I guess I call on all of you to join me, I believe and know that our students are telling the truth. Uh, I believe and know that they are acting not to suppress speech, but to enrich, enliven, and transform it. And I thank them for the many lessons that they've taught me over the years. And if they'll have me, I look forward to working with them for the next decade. Thank you. Uh, hi, I want to start by thanking out by thanking uh, the TJ Center and the law, the law school for having me here. Um, as Professor Kendrick mentioned, I worked at the TJ Center both my 1L summer and during my Kennedy Fellowship here at the law school. Um, so I really owe both the TJ Center and UVA a ton. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so the title of this panel is Free Speech Versus Hostile Environment, and I want to start off by just making sure everyone's on the same page as far as what that means. Um, the vast majority of speech is constitutionally protected, but when speech creates a hostile environment, um, as defined by law, that constitutes harassment, and so schools can punish that. Um, and harassment based on sex or race or another protected class is a serious issue that we have to address in order to make sure that all students can receive an education. But the legal boundaries of what constitutes hostile environment harassment are narrowly drawn, especially in the educational context. That way schools can punish concretely harmful speech while also ensuring that students and professors can enjoy the full extent of their free speech rights. Um, under the First Amendment at public institutions or according to promises of free speech that private schools make, and most private colleges and universities do make promises of freedom of expression. So achieving those two goals, protecting students from harassment and protecting their free speech rights, is critically important regardless of the content of the speech or the target of the harassment. But when it comes to sex, schools, especially colleges and universities, are being heavily pressured by students and professors and the public, and they're being directed by the federal government to punish speech that doesn't rise to the legal definition of harassment and is sometimes quite obviously protected expression. Of course, there's a lot of hard cases. Maybe something is protected expression, but it comes close to a legal line. But when so many really easy cases are being mishandled, it's a sign that something's seriously wrong on campus. This week, the University of Tennessee opened a Title IX investigation into a student for writing the name Sarah Jackson on a quiz. The, qu the quiz question was, what is your lab instructor's name? And the quiz said to make something good up if the student didn't know. Um, the student in question did not know, so he took a very common first name and a very common last name, put them together, and wrote them down on the quiz, and that name was Sarah Jackson. Um, his answer earned him not only a you know, wrong answer on the quiz, but a grade of zero on the quiz, and a note by the question that said, inappropriate. Apparently, Sarah Jackson is the name of a Canadian model and actress. How many people here knew that? Yeah, well, neither did the student, and he explained that in an email to his professor. Um, the professor wrote back, the result is that you gave the name Sarah Jackson, who is a lingerie and nude model. That result meets the Title IX definition of sexual harassment. 
Does it though? Well, to answer this, it's important to know that there's two types of sexual harassment in the educational con context. Uh, the first is quid pro quo. So that's like trading sex for grades. If you're a professor or you're in a position of power where you have something to offer a student, then you can engage in quid pro quo harassment. If you are, for example, a student or someone else who doesn't have that sort of position of power where you have something to offer, you can generally only engage in the second kind of harassment, which is hostile environment harassment. And the Supreme Court has defined this kind of harassment as targeted discriminatory conduct that's, uh, quote, so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively bars the victim's access to an educational opportunity or benefit. And that language comes from the 1999 case, Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's a narrow definition. It covers a speech that really has a concrete effect, which is that it prevents someone from receiving their education. Um, and it has an objective element, which is very important. A reasonable person has to be affected by this speech or this conduct. Um, something isn't harassment just because a, an especially sensitive person uh, finds speech subjectively offensive. Um, so uh, this standard allows schools to punish concretely harmful speech while also protecting free speech. So is the name Sarah Jackson objectively offensive? Um, is it so offensive that, it, uh, that a reasonable person would be deprived of their educational opportunities? Um, first of all, it, presumably until this whole story went viral, only the, only the instructors even saw the quiz to begin with. But even aside from that, I would go out on a limb and say that no, hearing a name that's shared by thousands of people in this country, one of whom happens to be a lingerie model, does not have that effect of... Uh, making it impossible for someone to receive their education. Nevertheless, UT uh, got wind of this story and opened a Title IX investigation into the student. Um, as of the last time I checked, might have, some of you might have heard updates more recently, but last I heard, uh, this investigation is still ongoing, and I read yesterday, an administrator said that it could take a week to resolve because people are still on fall break, but how hard is it to come to the conclusion that the name Sarah Jackson is not harassment under the law. So how did we get here? A lot of factors contributed, obviously, but one key player is the Office for Civil Rights. And OCR is the agency that enforces Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 um, that prohibits sex discrimination in uh, schools that receive federal funding. So for colleges and universities, that's all but a couple of them, because even private uh, universities usually accept so some sort of federal grants. Um, now, oh, and uh, prohibiting sex discrimination also includes dealing with sexual harassment, so telling schools how to deal with sexual harassment falls under OCR's purview. Years ago, most notably in a 2003 letter to schools, OCR used its position to help guide schools towards the proper balance um, in their policies and procedures to make sure that, school, that students were uh, protected against harassment, but also that their free speech rights were being protected. But in recent years, OCR has strayed uh, significantly from the Supreme Court's definition of sexual harassment in Davis, going as far as telling schools that they had to define sexual harassment as any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, and that included verbal conduct. So basically what you're saying is that includes any unwelcome speech of a sexual nature. 
Um, and again, I want, I want you to remember two things that the Davis standard has that are really important. There's the objective standard, and there's the requirement that the harassment interfere with someone receiving their education. And these limiting factors don't exist in this new definition. Uh, so think about what if someone uh, overheard you talking to your friend about Lawrence v. Texas, and they just, they really don't want to hear you talking about sodomy. Or maybe you invite someone over for Netflix and chill, and your affections are not reciprocated. Or maybe you are telling someone what Donald Trump said to uh, Billy Bush in unaired footage. Well, now it's aired from Access Hollywood, and the person who you're talking to, as a lot of people really hate the word pussy. All of these things could fall under this definition of sexual harassment, because it just has to be any unwelcome speech of a sexual nature. So OCR announced its new definition of sexual harassment, um, that is, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, in 2013, when it uh, concluded its and the Department of Justice's investigation into whether the University of Montana violated Title IX. And this investigation was motivated by concerns about how the school handled sexual assault, but the, uh, the findings letter and the resolution agreement that went along with it were really much broader than that. In addition to redefining harassment, the findings letter declared itself to be, quote, a blueprint for colleges and universities throughout the country to protect students from sexual harassment and assault. So even though the resolution agreement was really only binding on the University of Montana, other schools saw this language, took note, and actually a lot of them revised their sexual harassment policies to line up with this language, this new definition of sexual harassment. Um, again, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature was then prohibited at those schools. I've seen policies like this applied in real life, and I can tell you that it's not pretty. Just for one example, Teresa Buchanan was a tenured education professor at uh, Louisiana State University. Um, she was widely acclaimed and by most accounts had provided a great service to Louisiana education. Um, and again, LSU is a public institution that's bound by the First Amendment. She got fired in 2015 um, under LSU sexual harassment policy, which bore a striking resemblance to the Montana Blueprint definition of sexual harassment. So, what did she say that was so bad? Well, she joked about lesbians wearing brown pants, and uh, she had conversations with her students about language that they might potentially hear from the parents of their future students, because she was teaching future teachers, and she used the word pussy. But without more, this isn't harassment. So with the help of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, where I work, she sued LSU for violating her First Amendment rights. And um, that case was filed in January. It's still ongoing. So this is just one example of how this can play out. Sometimes when colleges overreact to uh, speech about sex or sexuality, though, it's not a matter of them uh, punishing the speaker in an obvious way, like firing them or giving them a zero on a quiz. Sometimes they subject the speaker to overly long investigations of their speech. Um, and this sends the message to everyone in the campus community, really, that the content or the viewpoint of your expression can land you in trouble, and it ends up chilling a huge amount of protected uh, expression. 
Uh, I think that one of the panelists yesterday talked about the case of Northwestern University professor Laura Kipnis, who was subjected to um, an investigation for several months over an article that she wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, which noted, among other things, how easy it is for professors to uh, get in trouble under Title IX when maybe they hadn't really done anything that was actually culpable. Uh, so pretty apt that she ended up being investigated for this. Um, her follow-up article, My Title IX Inquisition, um, is well worth reading in full, and I highly recommend that you Google it to uh, you know, read all the details of what happened to her. But anyone who is concerned about free speech or due process should be extremely worried that um, just talking about these issues can get you in trouble and put you at the risk for being punished for your speech. Uh, here's my favorite story, though, and by favorite, I mean the one that best illustrates the real danger of uh, overly long investigations of speech that is clearly constitutionally protected. Uh, the student newspaper at the University of Alaska Fairbanks has an April Fool's Day issue. And uh, one year, their April Fool's Day issue uh, featured this article about a, the school was going to build a vagina-shaped building. And the joke was, hey, there's already these phallic-shaped buildings, why not a vagina-shaped building? Uh, so maybe you find it funny, maybe you don't. You know, mixed reactions are totally understandable. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, now, a few weeks later, the newspaper also published an investigative report about the uh, Facebook UAF confessions page. And as you might expect with this sort of page, uh, some people posted some rude comments. And so the reporter um, commented on these rude comments, interviewed uh, one or two of the targets of the comments, and also quoted some of the public posts. And just to be clear, she didn't make anything public that wasn't already public. She didn't um, present any information as true that was false. It was, you know, an informational report. Uh, one professor reported both of these articles as sexual harassment under Title IX. And to UVA's credit, it did initially uh, conclude that these newspaper articles were not sexual harassment, but the professor appealed that decision, and so she essentially forced an extended investigation of these articles. And all in all, the newspaper was under scrutiny for 10 months. Now, uh, they were finally, the newspaper was finally exonerated after Fire wrote to UAF um, and the administration and explained that this was not okay, but First of all, were these articles so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that they effectively deprived students of their educational opportunities? But maybe more importantly, should it have taken almost a year for the school to uh, determine that they didn't? I think that it should not have taken that long. As free speech advocates know, though, this isn't just a legal issue, it's also a moral and practical issue. And in this case, the investigation had um, serious uh, practical ramifications. I actually got the opportunity to go up to Alaska and talk to some of the students that were involved with writing and publishing these articles. And one of them was the editor-in-chief of the student newspaper at the time. And she was telling me how she was so excited when she um, you know, went to UAF and 
she was so excited to join the student newspaper because she really wanted to cover the important issues. She wanted to make sure that her fellow students were educated about the important issue of sexual assault on campus, that they knew what resources were available to them, and what to do if, you know, God forbid, something happened to them. And she worked really, really hard on this article. It was going to have all sorts of important information. But in the end, she couldn't bring herself to actually publish it because she was afraid that, you know, maybe she would write something the wrong way or someone wouldn't like something she said, and then she would land in the middle of another Title IX investigation. And this shouldn't make sense because it would have been purely informational, and of course we need more conversations about sexual assault on campus. But on the other hand, her, the second newspaper article that had been investigated for so long was also purely informational and also arguably sorely needed. So her fear was completely reasonable and justified in the context of what was happening to her. And as a result of that, the entire campus community was deprived of this article that could have been a significant and really helpful resources for the whole campus community, but especially uh, survivors of sexual assault. The fact that this result came as a result you know, as a result of the application of Title IX is ironic, to say the least, and, you know, I think completely awful. So to sort of shift to a happier note before I end, um, those of you who are at UVA um, as students are in a better position than most college students when it comes to freedom of expression, and that's because UVA really does maintain very speech-protective uh, policies, written policies. Just to put UVA in perspective, uh, Fire Where I Work uh, basically tracks over 400 schools' policies, and we rate those policies and the schools. Um, UVA receives our highest rating, and out of the you know, 440 or so schools that we rate, less than 30 of them achieve that highest rating. So UVA is really you know, good on written policies. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, written policies aren't everything, and... Um, and protecting freedom of expression requires vigilance. It requires uh, a readiness and a willingness to explain First Amendment principles when someone is ready to change those policies or maybe punish someone despite good written policies. Uh, if, on the other hand, colleges and universities just keep coasting down this uh, slippery slope that we're on, then everyone in the campus community um, or other campus communities nationwide is um, at risk of being punished under the guise of sexual harassment and not be for actual harassment, but for commenting on due process or giving advice to future teachers or investigative journalism or even guessing someone's name wrong. And that's really not what Title IX was meant to shield us from. Thank you. So let's see, removable disk, all right, how are we doing? Uh, hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, thank you very much for having me here. This is a very uh, interesting and important topic. Uh, it's not a topic that I talked much about until about five years or so ago. Um, 
in part because I'd written, I'd written material on hostile environment harassment law, chiefly in the workplace. I wrote seven, actually, law review articles about it, uh, uh, starting with my student note. Uh, and I found it very interesting, but that's not where my scholarship is. So as being an academic, I've tried to give talks about new things. Uh, but there's a trade-off between that and important things. And over the last few years, this has become an ever more important topic. And that's not really very good. Uh, and let me begin by telling, uh, by talking about the incident that really cemented in my mind just how serious a problem there is. This, act, this happened at a top 20 law school, uh, not UVA, I'm pleased to say. Um, and it involved moot court. Now, presumably, uh, the great bulk of you here know what moot court is. At this school, the moot court was, like at many schools, run by students, but subject to some supervision by the faculty, perfectly sensible. Faculty might be needed to say, look, uh, your problem has a hole in it. Very, very good thing to, to have. Um, and like many other uh, moot courts, it was a closed problem. So you weren't tested on your research. You were given a packet of precedence. Uh, and then your goal was to write the best brief and then argue the best uh, based on that brief, based on those precedents. This was a couple of years ago. Unsurprisingly, uh, uh, the moot court problem was focused on a constitutional question then pending before the court, very normal for moot courts. Uh, the question at the time had to do with the true threats exception to the First Amendment. The case was Alonis. You may have heard of it as the Facebook threats case, although it was uh, involved Facebook was purely coincidental. Uh, it turned out that the court punted on the constitutional question and gave a somewhat unsatisfying statutory answer, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so they were, they were uh, um, setting up this problem. They were assembling the course back. And of course, the leading Supreme Court precedent was Virginia v. Black, 2003. In fact, it was the precedent that caused the problem that required the court to take the Alonis case. Uh, it said some things about the mens rea uh, required for threats that were departures, but seemingly unconsidered departures from pre-existing precedent. And some courts, therefore, interpreted it one way, uh, some courts another way. Interesting technical question for those of you, maybe there are a few non-lawyers, mens rea is the mental state required for somebody to be, to be punished. Uh, and Virginia v. Black was a cross-burning case, obviously, from this very state. Uh, it was one of the only two true threats cases that the court had decided. So obviously it was a leading precedent. But the students found that their advisor demanded that the precedent be removed from the reading. They said, well, how could this be? This is the leading precedent. Well, because black students might be, uh, feel distraught by having to read a case about cross-burning. Now, this wasn't a case that praised cross-burning. It's not Leslie V. Ferguson-era case or something like that. This was a case where cross-burners were prosecuted. Two of them had their convictions uh, uh, at least potentially affirmed. Uh, there, was some, there were some procedural twists to that. Uh, no, the advisor said, it was an administrator, uh, you can't have that because black students might be upset. By the way, ultimately, when it was all resolved and the case was ultimately put back in the, in the reading pack, uh, I'm unaware of any evidence the students were actually upset. But the advisor thought this was so. So they asked the advisor, well, but, but wait a minute, here are all of these other cases in the course back. Um, uh, which, uh, uh, which were circuit court cases that obviously had to have talked about Virginia v. Black because that's what circuit court cases do. They talk about the precedents, and they mention the facts of Virginia v. Black in the parentheticals. And the advisor said, oh, no, 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 uh, we've got that covered. You have to 
cross out that material from the parentheticals in those precedents that you leave in. So they said, this is ridiculous. This is, this is a law school. How can, you, how, how can we have a, a program like this without, uh, uh, without including the leading precedent? So they appealed it to three other administrators. All four said, Virginia v. Black, the leading Supreme Court precedent on the issue has to go. Now finally, I think the story has what I think is a happy ending. Um, <coughs> they ultimately, with the help of a, of a faculty member, they appealed to yet another administrator. It, that administrator uh, was, uh, was actually a, a tenured faculty member who was, was serving temporarily as administrator. And within a few days, everything was, was resolved. The original prohibition was reversed. And the, program, the problem proceeded with no noticeable problem. Uh, so, so it's good. I'm, I'm happy to say, as I said, I think this is a good thing. But it is pretty noteworthy that the issue even came up. Uh, an issue that to me is just, again, contrary to everything that a law school is supposed to be about. Partly as a matter of academic freedom, but partly as a matter of just sound pedagogy. Um, so here's one perspective for thinking about it. Imagine that you'd heard five years ago Rush Limbaugh say, you know what's wrong with all of this talk about, uh, about uh, uh, trigger warnings and safe spaces and speech codes and such? I can imagine that what's going to happen is somebody won't be able to have a moot court where it has a leading precedent because that happens to be about crossbow. Everybody who said, oh, that's ridiculous, conservative, scaremongering. You're just building up this nonsensical um, straw man to ride in your foolish parade of horribles. That's what they'd say. If there was a term that I could come up for the last five years, it would be kind of the march of the living straw man. That the straw men who we thought were straw men have come to life. They're not actually straw men at all. They really are there. They really are there. So, uh, so this fellow is Lord Melbourne. He's noteworthy for various things. He was a prime minister. Not of, of, of no great accomplishments, I think, uh, in, um, uh, in England. Um, he, was, uh, uh, he was known... Uh, he, uh, the city of Melbourne in... in um, uh, Australia is named after him. He became notorious because his wife had a very public affair with Lord Byron, the, the poet. In fact, apparently she was the one who coined the famous phrase about Byron was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And the other thing about Melbourne is that uh, apparently the king uh, who appointed him as prime minister in 1832 described him as, quote, the least bad choice, close quote. Uh, so he's a, he's a colorful fellow, but I'm going to appropriate him for one purpose and one purpose only. There's this quote that's been making the rounds. That it's so useful so, for many, so many things. It's attributed to him. It's a, um, uh, so there's some doubt about provenance, but good enough for our purposes. What all the wise men promised has not happened. And what all the damn fools said would happen has come to pass. Uh, when there's talk about these speech codes like the speech code that uh, was struck down in Dilby University of uh, Michigan or various others. It's always, well, look, just very modest restrictions, just civility. Who's against civility? Let's just make sure that people talk in productive, thoughtful ways. Let's ban the ban epithets or at least certain kinds of epithets. Uh, and yet, and yet, and when somebody says, well, what about the implications? Oh, slippery slope. That's just slippery slope nonsense. But somehow it all comes to pass, sometimes in the very, in that very, uh, um, uh, a code that's being proposed and the very examples to it. This is, in fact, uh, 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 this is one thing I very much appreciated about Vicamar's uh, 
uh, talk uh, earlier this morning when he quoted some of the things that Dovey University of Michigan, uh, what, what the University of Michigan itself, after announcing for civility and against harassment, uh, uh, what, what it characterized as potentially, uh, not, uh, potentially punishable behavior. Uh, uh, but, but certainly in the years after, uh, it, uh, all of these things do happen. Let me give an example. So let's, let's, say, let's say there's a university and people decide they want to have a protest by trampling on the Confederate flag. And offended students file charges of attempts to incite violence and create a hostile environment. Charges of actions of incivility. And university begins month-long investigation of the college Democrats who organize that. Oh, I'm just joking. Obviously, that would never happen. It's obviously clear that trampling on a flag is constitutionally protected symbolic expression, and people are free to do that, even if some people are quite offended. Well, this is what did happen. There was an incident in which the college Republicans at San Francisco State University were trampling on the Hamas flag. Now, I used the Confederate flag analogy um, uh, uh, advisedly. This is from uh, the Hamas charter. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. Uh, that's, just, that's just a little, little sample of what the Hamas charter says. This is Hamas charter's um, uh, a passage quoting the Quran. Uh, or uh, Hamas charter quoting a passage from the Quran. Uh, so, let, so the SFSU people didn't like much Hamas, so they, tr they made a copy of the Hamas flag and they trampled them. Now it turns out the Hamas flag in the uh, Arabic calligraphy contains the name of Allah. They didn't know that, although perhaps if they did know that, they'd say, okay, fine, well, all right, but we're trampled, we don't like Hamas. Offended students filed charges of attempts to incite violence and create a hostile environment and actions of incivility. University began months-long investigation of college Republicans. Again, if you made that up as a hypo at the time the uh, proposal, or excuse me, the speech code that ultimately was struck down by federal district court on First Amendment grounds, when it was proposed, people would say, well, no, 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 obviously not. No, we're just after people going around shouting epithets. Well, oddly enough, oddly enough, that wasn't what it was limited to. And of course, you could tell by reading it, because if you read the speech codes, you will often find that when the way they're interpreted is actually quite consistent with the way that they, that they were written. Janitors reading a book leads to discipline by a university. What's the book? Notre Dame versus the Klan. He was sitting there reading it at, I want to get this right, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Am I right? It's Yupui, or I don't know how it's pronounced. He was sitting there reading this book, Public University, and he was disciplined by the university. He used extremely poor judgment by insisting on openly reading the book related to historically and racially abhorrent subject in the presence of your black coworkers. That he was creating this bad environment for black coworkers for reading a book that was about the Klan. Now this is, this is not the birth of a nation. This is a book about how the fighting Irish defeated the Ku Klux Klan. Not good enough, not good enough. You shouldn't have read the book about any such topic at the university. Again, if somebody had come up with this as a hypo, people would have mocked him for setting up a straw man. Uh, so uh, we talked about, my, uh, excuse me, uh, Vic mentioned the microaggressions thing. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, actually, like some of these policies, it does again look like if you look at it in the abstract, it says, you know, if we're just sort of talking about things that send denigrating messages to recipient because of his or her group membership, Sounds maybe like very targeted, like somebody, somebody saying critical, negative things to you because of who you are. 
Um, well, you know, I'd say, okay, fine, maybe that's something we should warn you people about. By the way, the university, this is my University of California system, various uh, uh, departments sent around this message, described it as a form of racism and reading, leading to a hostile learning environment. Examples, affirmative action is racist, America's the land of opportunity, everyone can succeed in this society if they work hard enough. That is what, according to the university, is something that can lead to a hostile learning environment, the implication being that, therefore, it ought it can be and ought to be banned. Uh, now, you may or may not agree with some of these uh, uh, opinions, but the premise of this is that those opinions are per se something that university cannot tolerate on this hostile environment theory. Another example, behaviors that do not reflect the universities, again, the University of California's values of inclusion and tolerance, and that violate a right to work free from expressions of intolerance. University doesn't actually say you'll be fired for this, but when it says to people, especially people who aren't tenured faculty members, uh, that this violates, this speech violates people's right to be free from such speech, the message is we're going to have to do something to protect those people's rights, right? So what are examples? Depicting or articulating a view of ethnic or racial groups as less ambitious, less hardworking or talented, or more threatening than other groups. Now, I'm sure that many depictions or articulations of such views are wrong. It's possible that all of such articulations are wrong. At the same time, you know, there are these hot debates about why do we see, for example, different levels of success among various ethnic and racial groups. Uh, 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 some Asian American groups, for example, tend to do better on average than whites. Um, Hispanics tend to do somewhat worse on average. It's a generalization depending on the Hispanic group. Uh, African Americans tend to do to do, uh, to do worse than whites as well. What's the, what's the reason? Now, some people say it's all racism. It's solely because of racism. Perfectly possible. Again, one would have to ask why that's so as to Asians doing better. But, you know, maybe there's a good explanation. I certainly can't rule that out. But I take it somebody could say, well, no, 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 wait a minute. It's really because, for example, the Asians succeed more because they, their culture makes them more ambitious or more hardworking. Or they're taught in a way that imbues them with certain extra talents which makes, leads to the possibility maybe some groups that underperform. The problem is that there are such cultural problems there too. Maybe completely wrong, but the university isn't just saying, well, we disagree with this. Here is the counter argument. It's saying that any expression of these views in this kind of discussion, any dis expression of a view that's contrary to the orthodox is a violation of people's rights. Here's another example, depicting or articulating a view of people with disabilities as incapable. Now, I don't much care for sort of these renamings of various groups, how handicapped become disabled, or people with disability, or whatever else. But there's one that I really liked. Somebody, a disabled, uh, uh, um, an uh, advocate for uh, rights of the handicapped, came uh, to some university and said, uh, where I, I was listening to the talk, and he said, you know, we should change the name for people who are not handicapped. We should call them the temporarily able-bodied. And I thought there was a lot of wisdom to that. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, this is something can, that can happen, probably will happen to all of us, some kind of disability, certainly to many of our loved ones. Certainly has happened to my loved ones. But one of the things that's so tragic about many of these disabilities is precisely that they make people incapable of certain things. Now, don't make people incapable of everything, or even of, many of, them, of very many things, unless the disabilities are especially severe. Maybe the incapability is in some measure exaggerated in many situations. Maybe it could be eased through various accommodations. Then you can debate whether there should be such accommodations, more of them, less of them, and such. But the university was condemning depiction articulation that, in my view, is absolutely correct. 
It was telling you these, these things, even if they're true, as I said, unfortunately, very often they are, that is a violation of people's rights for you to express them. So this is, of course, one of the iconic images of uh, uh, the 21st century. I suspect when the 21st century is done, it will remain one of the iconic images. This is the post-Charlie Hebdo massacre, um, uh, a cover of Charlie Hebdo. And this is a flyer for an event that was put on, by, I believe, by the University of Minnesota French Studies Department. But tenured faculty members who are organizing this very serious academic event but some people complained because they found the cover blasphemous. Director of the Equal Opportunity Affirmative Action Office said the office had to investigate because there are limits on free speech, and that would be where you have harassment of an individual based on their identity. You know, the rhetoric is harassment of individual as if someone was running after a Muslim saying, you're responsible for Charlie Hebdo murder, you terrorist. No, it's just a, a flyer, according, uh, according to Kimberly Hewitt, was something that might be seen as harassment of an individual based on their identity. The con investigation concluded the flyer does not rise to the level of harassment, but because many people found the poster personally offensive and hurtful and contributed atmosphere of disrespect towards Muslims, uh, the, he would recommended that the dean communicate that the college not support the flyer's image. Now, I would like the dean to have communicated the flyer, that, that the college does support the flyer's image because it is such an important image and an important part of debate, and it's the job of the uh, university to support faculty members displaying things that really are, obviously, as I said, important parts of what's ha actually happening. If the dean had, however, and ultimately I think this was the dean's position, said, look, you know, it's not my job to support or oppose, to make such statements, it's my job to get out of the way when my faculty uh, put on uh, scholarly events, that would have been fine for me, but not fine for the Minnesota Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action Office in uh, applying these hostile environment policies. UC San Diego, the provost announced, provost not of the whole university, but a part of one of the colleges, any violation of UCSD's code of conduct will be treated with greatest seriousness and draw the fullest sanction. Now, what was he talking about that, that he seemed to suggest might have been a violation? Somebody chalking on the sidewalks, build the wall, deport them all, Mexico will pay, make America great again, Tritons for Trump. I am a Republican, I'm not a Trump supporter, I wouldn't chalk such things. University of San Diego, UC San Diego policy specifically allows students to chalk uh, whatever they like on sidewalks. You can't chalk on walls, but you can chalk on sidewalks. Pretty obviously, it isn't that full of sanction for the chalking. It's the message that the provost thought the university should be sanctioned, the message of support for somebody who, not wasn't my choice, but who is one uh, of uh, uh, the leading political candidates in the country today. Um, the list could go on, but I want to get to Douglas Muir. So recall, of course, Douglas Muir uh, wrote this on somebody's Facebook uh, post. Uh, Black Lives Matter is the biggest racist organization since the Klan. Are you kidding me? Disgusting. I think it's a pretty foolish statement. But then again, lots of things that various people, including colleagues of mine, say I think are pretty foolish statements. Uh, I want to I quote the response from the engineering school because I do think it sends a somewhat different message than what, that what we heard today about, uh, uh, about uh, uh, how Muir's um, uh, uh, suspension, essentially, leave, uh, perhaps, I'm sorry, we heard his leave, his voluntary leave, should be interpreted in a particular way. I'm sure that President Sullivan is absolutely correct in describing what it is that, that he was uh, 
that, that he had decided. And it's certainly possible that Muir had decided, uh-oh, that was a really dumb thing for me to say. Sometimes people do realize that. Uh, but here is the statement from the engineering uh, school. And let's look at it closely. A recent comment regarding the Black Lives Matter movement has raised serious concerns about UVA engineering's commitment to diversity, inclusion, and support of traditionally underrepresented, underrepresented populations. The same statement would apply equally to any criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement, even ones that are much more sensible. Uh, and by the way, I think there are very sensible criticisms to be made of the Black Lives Matter movement. While free speech and open discussion are fundamental principles of our nation, Mr. Muir's comment was entirely inappropriate. UVA engineering does not condone actions that undermine our values. Our faculty and staff are responsible for upholding our values. And Mr. Muir has agreed to take leave, again, as somebody pointed out, agreed to take leave and is preparing his own statement to the community. We expect our faculty and staff to create a climate that supports and engages, engages all. If you are a student or another untenured faculty member and reading it, which of the following will you infer? A, the guy said something really dumb and obviously over the top. That's really all the engineering school is is complaining about. If he had said something that is plausible, uh, then in that case, uh, if he had made sort of a more, more sensible, albeit very controversial criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement, no problem. There wouldn't have been any, uh, any uh, institutional pressure on him or anything like that. I should feel free to say the same things again so long as I don't say things that are kind of pretty patently nonsense. That's one possible interpretation. Second possible interpretation is uh, Nothing here says anything about how this is ridiculous. The Klan, obviously, is a, was, its history is vastly, vastly different. We understand that there are disagreements about Black Lives Matter. Some people support it. Some people uh, 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 disapprove of it or some of its rhetoric or some of its focus. Uh, we welcome uh, a, a, um, a sensible discussion uh, about this. But, you know, Mr. Muir is going to be apologizing because it was really kind of a foolish thing to say, and university is no place for fools. Uh, so uh, so um, uh, uh, that's, that's what the university could have said, but it didn't, right? So the second interpretation is none of that appears in the statement. All that appears in the statement is that, uh, is that the comment raises serious concerns about commitment to diversity, uh, it talks about how it's consistent with the values and dedication to diversity, uh, how it doesn't support and engage people enough, and therefore I had better not say anything critical about the Black Lives Matter movement, because maybe regardless of how I put it, whether I put it in a sensible, well-informed way or not, something similar is going to happen to me. Closing quote is, this incident has illuminated the need for further dialogue. All right, dialogue is a lovely thing. But when you see enough people on one side of the dialogue be ending up, whether, it's, whether they agree to it or they volunteer or whatever else, but ending up taking a leave of absence in this case, who knows what it'll be in the next case, uh, uh, because they express a particular view in the dialogue, what is the message that you're going to get? And on that, I close. Thank you to all our panelists. I think we have time for a question or two. Yes. If you could wait for the microphone. Thank you. Question for Professor Coughlin. You mentioned that um, 
uh, students have requested some additional accommodations and you're still processing those. Could you tell us what those are and where you are in your analysis? Yeah, I think I, I didn't have anything specific in mind. Um, I was referring more to, well, I thought Susan might be speaking about some cases or was alluding to the fact that Susan uh, would be speaking about cases in which faculty members were asked or even maybe investigated for certain kinds of remarks that they made in class, certain ways of speaking about the law of rape. I, I've never encountered any of those issues here, and I'm waiting to hear from my students what they might have in mind. Um, this is more of a question for the folks that are not Dr. I mean, Professor Coughlin. <laughs> so my concern is there seems to be uh, a preoccupation with not freezing speech. But that is, you know, in my analysis, sort of a top-down concern as opposed of, uh, to sort of a grassroots concern in the sense that what about the concern that if we demonize Title IX complaints, if we demonize trying to make efforts to have civil speech or have respectful speech, that in you know, can in turn freeze speech in classrooms, you know, among people who feel like, you know, they're the minority view. And I think that's something that, being a recent grad of UVA law myself, I experienced um, being concerned about, you know, if, is my opinion on um, Title IX, my favorable opinion, unpopular? So I, I don't know where we, I think that's what this panel needs to kind of be a meeting of the minds. How do we balance both uh, types of concerns that people have and, and, and recognize that there is a within, which is the community, which is we as students have to live together, we have to get along, we have to make some of our own rules, and then the guidelines that administrators have to set. And I, I am concerned that we are moving towards intolerance for efforts that, that you know, common sense efforts that universities are trying to implement based on just listening to students' real life experience. So how do we come together and have sort of some sort of balance, I guess is my question. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I certainly don't mean to demonize complaints. Um, I think that it is the school's job mostly to um, be able to tell when something's obviously not harassment so that students feel comfortable um, going and raising concerns if they want to, but so that you know, speech isn't chilled by the school essentially sending this message that people are going to be punished for protected speech. Um, you know, I don't expect all students to know these legal definitions, but if the school is going to be punishing harassment, it should know the legal definitions of harassment. So it really needs to perform that gatekeeper function. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, my colleagues at FIRE and I always like to see students, um, if they want to, you know, see a civil conversation, by all means, um, encourage your fellow students to have those civil conversations, and the school also can encourage civility. Um, that's perfectly fine. The problem, again, is when uh, the, you know, public institutions or private institutions that have promised freedom of expression punish certain kinds of expression because of its tone or its con um, content. Um, there's nothing wrong with uh, everyone explaining um, that 
conversations are going to be more productive a lot of the time if they're civil, if people actually listen to each other. This is a practical argument to make. Um, and so we like seeing those sorts of arguments. Again, it's really about the punishment. So uh, I, uh, one thing that's often said by people on both sides of the debate, which I think is perfectly right, is freedom of speech does not equal freedom from criticism for the speech. Uh, if, for example, I thought the UC statements were just, look, we want to criticize this particular statement, and we just disagree with it, uh, then I think even coming from an employer to employees, that would be, I think, an acceptable position, although at some point, obviously, it becomes something more of a threat. Um, uh, so I want to know what, you, what is meant by demonize. So for example, is it demonizing when somebody uh, condemns, say, anti-affirmative action sentiments as racism? Is it demonizing when, when somebody who uh, speaks up in favor of Trump is condemned as racist? Well, it's an interesting question. A lot depends on whether we think it's a sound criticism. A lot depends on whether we think it's a well-founded criticism. I wouldn't try to set up a speech code that says it's wrong to condemn people as racist even though condemnations of racism do have a chilling effect on speech, because a lot of people who say things don't want to be called racist, and as a result, uh, they might be deterred from speaking by the threat of being called racist. But that can't be a justification for itself suppressing plausible arguments about racism. Likewise, if people want to make plausible, and I think very many are, criticisms of the overuse of Title IX and Title VI and speech codes and such, I'm not, uh, I, I think they should be free to do that. Uh, uh, and the response is to, is to uh, argue against it rather than saying sort of that it is upfront, uh, 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 upfront demonization. Now, if the demonization is that you're, you oppose sort of over-the-top criticisms, criticisms that are unfounded, criticisms that say, oh, this is just like the Nazis. Uh, lots of people are compared to the Nazis, and very few of them are really like the Nazis. Hamas might be one exception. Uh, but uh, uh, but um, uh, uh, that I think I would totally agree with. So I. So uh, I think if a dean were to say, look, people are criticizing Title IX, or people are criticizing Trump, or people are criticizing a, uh, uh, critics of affirmative action, and you know, those are perfectly pretty, pers uh, sensible criticisms to have, but let's keep them substantive. Let's not just say, oh, you're just a ridiculous censor and fascist, or you're just a ridiculous racist, or know nothing, or whatever else. I'm fine with that, but I think uh, we can't, under the guise, it seems to me, of condemning demonization, essentially say, say that you can't criticize certain positions for fear that uh, those who are expressing it will be deterred. Time for one more question. Yes. If you could wait for the mic for just one moment. Thank you. Cotton mouth. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for being here. It's a fantastic discussion. Um, my question is about the comments Larry Summers made back in 2005, where he said the reason that women weren't equally represented in the sciences is due to certain innate differences. Would you uh, concede that those sentiments are outside the mainstream and deserving of sanction, or would you defend them as well, coming from the university president uh, on free speech grounds? I absolutely would defend them. Now, the one exception is, I do think university administrators are in a special position. They're sort of ambassadors to you, for the university. And so you could say, look, at a certain point, look, if you alienate enough donors, whether it's because you're a communist or you're too much of a militant Black Lives Matter supporter or whatever else, look, you're just not good ambassador for the university. So it's an interesting question. Then that also has, a quite, has to do with whether at some point you should say, look, even if you are alienating some donors, one of the things we need to model is the ability to question everything, which is the job of the university. But look, uh, we have uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes, right? And one of 
those 46 chromosomes is different for men and women. The one thing we know about women, men and women is, as a general matter, biologically different. Is there any biological difference between men and women when it comes to temperament, when it comes to distribution of intellectual abilities, distribution of various, uh, uh, various habits? Uh, it's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer to it. I am perfectly prepared for uh, a finding that, in fact, there is no difference, or at least no significant difference. I'm perfectly prepared for a finding that there is actually quite a significant difference, not for every individual, but as a general group, and maybe enough of a difference that, that explains different levels of interest, or at least partly explains different levels of interest and abilities in certain areas. Most mammals have substantial sexual dimorphism, not just in appearance, but also in habits and temperaments. Uh, and uh, that's not, I think, because they were, they were brought up in a patriarchal or matriarchal culture. Uh, those are tremendously important questions, and I, don't, I doubt that any biologist would say, no, they're settled. We've been studying it for millennia, and they're settled. No, actually, people have been studying it for millennia, mostly extraordinarily badly. Uh, and now we are in this environment where finally we're getting to know more about the brain. Finally, we're getting to know more about genetics. And it, it, to me, it is a betrayal of the concept of the university and advancement of knowledge to say, we're just going to, as a matter essentially of faith, of ideological faith, rule that off the table. What's more, again, I'm perfectly prepared for a finding that they are, uh, th that men and women actually have very few such differences and maybe none. In fact, in my own life, I see women lawyers and male lawyers. I don't really see any difference in, uh, in quality or, or intellectual ability. Uh, but I can't be confident of that if I know the contrary view is being suppressed. This is a basic principle of science. The only way you can be confident in a scientific consensus is if you know that the dissenters from that consensus have spoken, can continue to speak as new, as new things develop, and their views are rebutted or rejected on the merits. Once you do that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist or geneticist. I'm not going to uh, do all of that research myself. But if, if I know that there is freedom of debate on this subject and a consensus view emerges, I feel that's that I can take to the bank. Maybe not 100% uh, certain. Uh, after all, a scientific consensus is sometimes prove, are proven badly wrong. But, you know, 90% certain. But if I know that one side has been silenced by the threat of being fired, uh, then in that case, uh, then in that case, uh, I would say, you know, whatever the other side is saying, I can't believe a word of it because how do I know that maybe this consensus is artificially produced by that suppression? Well, I want to thank all of our panelists. I want to thank the Thomas Jefferson Center, the American Constitution Society, the Federalist Society, and also all of you for being here today for this very productive discussion. Thank you.